If you go into something about which you're passionate and you go into it altruistically and you go into it because you think it's an honorable thing to do, your thirst for that knowledge, your quest for that knowledge to, to, to uh, you know, go ahead and be part of the business, I think really is a wonderful opportunity. So I just, I soaked it all in from veterinarians, from other farmers, from Cooperative Extension more than anybody else, Cooperative Extension. That got me for better or for worse where we are now. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Jack Hansen. Hey, Jack, I want to know if I could sell you a bridge from where we are right now and where the government and public policy and the population seems to want us to get, which is a strange way to start a conversation, Jack. But you're a rancher and you're in the northern part of California. And I want to welcome you to Farm to Table Talk. And then I'll explain my question about the bridges. So, hey, Jack, good to see you again. Uh, thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm honored. So thank you very much for the invitation. Well, well the honor is all mine. And Jack, to start off with, I would call you a rancher. Is that fair? Fair enough. Yes. Well, you know what? You get around the country and one thing comes up is what's the difference between a rancher and a farmer? So how do you explain that? Uh, I'd say the fact that we primarily depend on livestock for to make a living. That's our primary product. What about all these farmers that are coming up with some of the small acreage and are just strictly vegetables? That they are, Is that a different category? Is it the same thing? Um, I would, you know, I, I guess I could kind of, you know, bifurcate things a little bit. Uh, um, to me, there, uh, there are a number of different kinds of farmers, and certainly in California especially, we... We certainly grow a, such a wide variety of products. We grow them on small acres, large acres. Um, we grow trees. We don't grow as many row crops, which would be corn and beans and, and wheat and so on. Not as much of that, uh, sunflowers if you want to, but not as much of that in California. But uh, no, I would consider farmers, the, the trees, the vines, and, and uh, then uh, obviously uh, we can go down the list with tomatoes and lettuce, so on and so forth. But uh, they may have livestock as an adjunct, uh, if you will, to to their operations. But uh, I think the rancher is primarily the one that runs on a more extensive landscape and has uh, those has those animals, whether they be sheep or cattle, has those animals as their primary primary source of income. Well, that's interesting. You know, around the country, I hear different people that refer to themselves either as rancher or as a farmer. So someday I'll have to do a podcast just about that. But I remember a, a rancher down in Texas, and he said, there's good ranchers and there's good farmers, but I've never known a rancher that could farm good, and I never knew a farmer that could ranch. And uh, I that uh, was that's excellent. Yes, I would agree. <laughs> Because I can't farm very well, I can tell well, you. But you ranch. So that starts with land, and it starts with uh, forages of some sort, and and ruminant animals. With that, now we can get a little more specific from there, right? That's correct. That's correct. 
yeah, it's pretty much a beef cow, beef cattle operation. We're kind of our segment of the uh, of the uh, beef industry is the cow calf segment. So consequently, we will run uh, a lot of mother cows if we can, or as many mother cows as we can. We'll have them all calf every year. Give us a calf. We'll turn around and uh, grow that calf on the cow, and then uh, eventually. Uh, especially the, the male calves, the steers, uh, they'll all uh, go on uh, to greener pastures somewhere else and we'll retain some of the females for replacement. And uh, so we're kind of the, the base of the beef business uh, from obviously Roger, as you know, uh, when you go up from uh, the cow calf operator, you go up to the stalker and he may buy uh, calves and then put them out on grass, raise them to a little bit heavier weight and uh, those will either continue to go into the grass-fed beef market or they might get uh, sold or placed into a feedlot operation a concentrated feedlot operation and then eventually be harvested after that so well jack we got listeners uh, all over the united states but all over the world i've got some people that are tuning in so if they're looking at their globe right now or they're or they're pulling up a map and they say i wonder if i know where california is so where is it if you zero in in that what upper right hand corner of the map of california kind of, kind of generally how is that the the space that you occupy that's correct yeah we're right up in the corner next to oregon and nevada uh i could uh well in my younger days i could have probably thrown a rock and got it into nevada but at any rate the <laughs> nevada border is extremely close and then Oregon, it's high desert country for the most part. We have some fertile valleys uh, and, and that's where we're, we're blessed to have our base operation. Uh, the base operation is about 5,000 feet. And then uh, our grazing, uh, grazing portion of our operation, which is primarily the Bureau of Land Management or federal government grazing lands, it goes up to about six or 7,000 feet. So we're going to have to slow down again for people that aren't used to this sort of thinking of ranch country like this. So I assume you're running cattle on private land, perhaps that you own or rent, mm -hmm. and then uh, uh, federal land, which would be Bureau correct. of Land Management. Is there any state for us? Yes, there's a, well, actually, it's not for us, but uh, we have three leases that we use at different times of the year with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. So we have three state leases as well. In fact, the majority of the cattle at this time, it's January, the majority of the cattle are down at a wildlife area in the Sacramento Valley, Spenceville Wildlife Area, right outside of uh, Yuba City. Now these, that's far enough away, you can't trail them, so you're, you're, you're trucking. Yeah, in the old days, I guess they did, but no, they'll, they'll hop on a truck. They'll, they'll take a truck ride down there. Yeah. Well, let's just take another look at this land. So the resource that you're starting with to convert into income, which is, uh, and also what you're converting into protein, uh, are grasslands that are either these lease lands or property land. And you're saying it's a high, high desert. So when it's in a rangeland operation, can those cows or whatever you're grazing, do they get enough to eat without supplemental feeds? Uh, say through the, through the summertime, or do you always need to have some supplemental feed? Through the summertime, we're we're blessed between the irrigated lands uh, that we have on 
on our uh, on our home ranch and and some that we rent from Cal Fish and Wildlife, and then the rangelands, the open rangelands uh, that we the BLM lands that are adjacent to the ranch. We do not supplemental feed during the summer. Mm-hmm. We're, but, we're blessed in that respect. But then, what happens in the winter? Do you have to feed, or do you have? To, is that when you're trying to move them, move them to some other areas that you get some uh, grazing? We have uh, we we don't have uh, enough winter feed. Well, for all the animals, so we still have uh, still have replacement heifers and so on at home. For the cows, uh, if Mother Nature works everything just right, we'll feed very little because our fall forage here on the home ranch and in this area in Lassen County. It'll carry us pretty close to the time when it's an opportunity to go down to the Sacramento Valley and uh, and graze down there. Um, there may be a couple of weeks in between where we have to where we have to feed the majority of the cows. Right now, though, we do have animals on the property that we're feeding during the winter time. It's a very expensive proposition, obviously, and more so during drought periods. What kind of feed do you have to give them? Uh, they're getting long, what we consider long hay, long hay that we produce on the ranch. Um, so they're they're getting pretty pretty much just long hay, and then uh, a, a mineral a mineral mix or a mineral formula supplementation, all natural, obviously, uh, that uh, that we provide to them as well to to make sure those trace minerals are are kept at an appropriate level. Now, uh, on, it's mostly on, long hay. The long hay is costing anywhere from two fifty to three hundred dollars. And it doesn't cost us that, obviously, because we put it up ourselves. But by golly, when you're turning around and feeding it, if that's what it's worth in the marketplace, that's what the value is when you're throwing it out to those animals. So if you had a a pair, a cow-calf pair, how much land do they need to graze on in those different situations? I mean, uh, so when when you figure how many per unit, per grazing unit, how does that work out? Uh, That's interesting. Uh, out on the Bureau of Land Management, it's about 46,000 acre allotment, and uh, we'll put out about 250 cows out there. So you can kind of do the math. Those cows will be out there. Uh, we, we kind of look at that on what we call an AUM basis, and so does the federal government. That's animal unit month. In other words, an AUM, one AUM is equal to the amount of forage that it requires to carry one cow and one calf for a month. And so uh, we'll have about uh, 1,000 AUMs out on this 46,000 acre uh, plot of land. And so consequently, um, you can take that 1,000 into the 46. It'll take about 46 acres to carry them through the summer months that they're out there. You know, I've heard that a lot. I mean, you get into the into the West. I've known other ranchers, and and it's the thing that had stuck with me. I knew some people up in Wyoming, and it was taking them like forty seven acres, forty seven, forty eight, forty eight acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you divide that by a month, it'll it'll be ten acres a month. And of course, uh, the uh, quality of the rangeland out there, obviously, with a forty six thousand acre allotment. The quality of the rangeland out there may vary. They'll spend a little bit more time in the higher quality areas, especially those around water, and then a little less time as they spread out from water. So it's not as though they're out there using every acre equally. Get them into the irrigated property, and it may be just an acre a month that it takes to carry a cow and a calf on the irrigated lands. Uh, So that's that's a much more intensive type operation. 
but obviously produces a lot a lot better feed a lot more quickly now if you ran sheep up there you could get what like five to each yeah it's about you're right on the number yeah it's, it's between four and seven five five's always been a good number and i think that's what the blm is using right now well one of the differences i mean both sheep and cattle are converting that um because they're ruminant animals and so they're converting it to meat but with sheep you have to have a herder out there uh and i would imagine how much attention do your cattle need do you have to have somebody down there when they're in that range yeah we're we're uh, fortunate that on the blm property it's contiguous to the ranch so consequently we can we can check those cattle daily pretty easily uh it's a it's a fairly large area but we know where they are we've got separate pastures so these cattle are rotated uh, during those summer months uh, there are four separate pastures that they'll run on, and they're kind of rotated through those pastures. Yeah, but uh, we can check on them. The cattle down in the Sacramento Valley—they're a couple of hundred miles away from the ranch. Uh, we have an individual down there on call that can take care of any issues because uh, the state game agency wants you to be able to respond relatively quickly. And uh, but they—they uh, they pretty much take care of themselves. I'll be honest with you: predator issues. Um, you know, bears in California, bears are becoming a little bit more of a predator issue. We have coyotes, obviously, but my sons may not agree with me. But to be honest with you, the coyote population, it's pretty balanced. They eat a lot of rodents out in the fields and stuff like that. Uh, our predation uh, is pretty much bears and mountain lions. Coyotes aren't that bad. Well, if you got the other side of the Sierras, you'd run into more wolves, but I don't think you got many. On uh, we have wolves in the in the territory, actually. The the first wolf to return to California was OR7, and mm. he was a stone's throw from the ranch. He was about 20 miles away, 15 miles as the crow flies, just kind of over in the next valley. So, yeah, we and we've got the Lassen pack. Oh, uh, okay. And it's not on our property, per se. It's a little bit more over in the Lassen National Forest. Uh, that's probably uh, 10 miles as the crow flies to our west. But they our probably ranch, kills, they Our kill. ranch actually, uh, we're, we're the, the Willow Creek, which flows, uh, uh, bisects the ranch. It's a dividing line between the Cascades and the Great Basin or the Modoc Plateau. So it's a, it's a very, very interesting area. The Sierras also, uh, they have their northern end in Lassen County. So we have the Cascades which end at Mount Lassen, and then we have the Sierra Nevadas and the Great Basin all kind of coming together here. Oh, it's beautiful country. Every once in a while, I tell people that I'm from California, and they just think, oh, that must be horrible. You know, it's so crowded, and you've got all these turnpikes and everything. Uh, and I said, you contrary. know what? I can, I can show you places where you can't even imagine there's turnpikes, and it's up in your country. And it's beautiful. It's wide open spaces, and, and again, some people that aren't from around here would be shocked that they could be in such areas that aren't crowded and then it's not crowded no in california there's probably uh, as much solitude out here in the great basin country the high desert as there is anywhere in the state of california for sure well you know what i think there's some people that have heard us just say this much that say man i'd like to be up there but I suppose, Jack, it, it ain't all it's cracked up to be. I mean, there's got to be some, <laughs> some times. I mean, in fact, I know that you've said before that um, 
you know, it's been slow getting the internet up there and it's been slow getting Wi-Fi. And, you uh, know, and so you do face challenges, even though for many of us that uh, are in cities might think you're in paradise. Uh, it's got some shortcomings, doesn't it? Uh, yes. If one were to depend on the internet, of course, Elon has, uh, he's got his toe wet here. And so we're, uh, we're being provided Starlink now. And uh, obviously, you know, the federal government, uh, you know, they've had programs ever since the Bush era, the, the George Bush, not H.W., uh, but uh, since uh, George Bush was president, they, they or since Bill Clinton, they've been promising broadband and so on, and it never quite gets here. So consequently, we've gone to satellite. Well, for all those people listening in, I want it to be noted, we're saying something good about Elon. He's been picked on a lot lately, so... And, you know, he parked Starlink above you, and I didn't realize. He also did Ukraine. I did a podcast with somebody. Did Did you really? Yeah. yeah, I did a podcast with someone that was on, and she was uh, running a program from the Ukraine and the communications, which is being used by the farmers there, too, in addition to the military, uh, was um, Starlink. Well, of all the satellite services offered, Starlink is the only one that's really consistent. I'm not no. trying to advertise for Elon. Well, we're using it right now. We're we're yes, we we're on that on that channel. I want to go. I want to finish up with the cows a little bit because I'm all sure. fascinated with cows. So, um, what breeds are you using? We're we use a crossbreed, uh, but it's basically Angus. Uh, as uh, many are aware, the black cattle kind of became the favorite of the Asian markets and some of our export markets, and then domestically as well. So we use an Angus cross cow, and uh, so we we end up with mostly black-hided offspring. Uh, we we cross them with Simmental, which is a continental breed, a larger breed, So with, which actually is not larger now. They've downsized. We're all kind of downsizing our cows a little bit so we can run more cattle more efficiently instead of those big elephant-sized cows that many of us had. But, yeah, we're, we're using Angus cows. We get black calves. And um, it, it's a good balance between, we think that the, cow, the the calves we have are a good balance between a high quality product in the end and uh, the ability to stay in the herd, stability, and uh, their, their mothering ability. Our calves actually uh, were involved in uh, the Harris Partnership Program. So our calves go directly to Harris Feeding down there in Kalinga. And uh, we're we're involved in their vertically integrated program. But with the Simmentals, when you cross them with black, do you, do you get a baldy? Do you get a, a, a no? White we base? do not. We usually get black black calves. The Simmental breed a long time ago, obviously. When I say a long time ago, back in the mid seventies and the, the late sixties, they arrived in the, the United States, but became popular in the mid seventies, mid to late seventies. Uh, they were much bigger animals, and there was a lot of red and white in there. But again, responding to the marketplace and the fact that black animals, and as I said, as far as I'm concerned, once you take the hide off, the meat's the same. But but the marketplace was uh, demanding or or paying a premium for black animals, and so consequently, you no. Know, going back to your Simmental question, there yeah. are, there are more black Simmentals than there are other colors now. Well, I'll be darned. But actually, it's one of the most successful programs, I think, the Certified Angus Beef Program. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it, it was out there on the frontier, and I was actually trying to 
hire people back in that time to be merchandisers and uh certified angus beef hired somebody away from me uh and and they just have done a tremendous job um i've been impressed so we're about ready to get to the bigger picture here but on these cows and calves and you're you know raising them in these different operations um about how many uh cows do you do you run overall if you mind me asking no don't mind you asking because you know it, it, people used to be a little bit hesitant but quite frankly the world kind of knows what we're all doing these days and there's 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 nothing nothing in our operation that's confidential or anything we have about 500 mother cows and then in addition to those mother cows obviously you have a set of bulls that are required to to service those cows and then we have replacement heifers about two three hundred replacement heifers that will run at any one time we calve twice a year twice a year allows us we calve in what we call the spring and then we calve in what we call the fall uh but uh, we'll calve twice a year it allows us to use our resources uh, a little bit better uh, whether those be labor resources at the bulls for instance we can use our bulls twice a year instead of once a year and it allows us to put those animals on different types of feed when they may demand a different level of nutrition and and, and so on so as I said we calve twice a year we sell twice a year now do you have to bring them in close when it's uh, calving time or are they pretty, um, pretty good on the range interesting one set of cows the, the spring cows will be in close because they'll still be on feed they'll be on concentrated feed or they're down in the sacramento valley they're calved by themselves in the sacramento valley are what we call our fall cows they'll be calving outside on the bureau of management bureau of land management the blm allotment so they're calving out on those forty-six thousand plus acres that we indicated earlier um you know, when you concentrate them, boy, it, it, we would prefer actually that they're spread out when they can. When you concentrate them, Roger, if you come up with uh, scours or or pneumonia or you know any number of diseases that those little babies can contract, it can spread pretty easy. So we would prefer that they're that they're kind of spread out and out in the country. So, Jack, I'm closer to the Sacramento Valley than you are. So, if you need a little help up there, call me. I, I will do that. I can, I can, I'm going to give you a call. I'd love to. I, have could, you. I could run I'd up there. I've, I've been involved in calving before. Yep. But Perfect. I think uh, I left the farm too. But yeah, uh, we, yeah. what we've done too in, in the industry, you know, obviously genetics and genomics and, and so on have, have advanced dramatically over the. I started in 75 uh coming from the bay area in 1975 and uh, we've 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 just made some huge strides in improving our cattle for instance you know you mentioned calving we used to have to watch these animals very closely because they'd have a lot of dystocia or calving issues and maybe provide assistance but uh we've got these animals so that they don't require a lot of assistance they can calve out in the country and be very successful at it and, Obviously, I think we've improved the quality of the meat as well. We used to see if we had 50% choice, we'd be doing well. Now we're 90% choice in the prime. That's our operation specifically, not necessarily uh, the, the industry as a whole, but we've all, we've all moved that, moved that needle. 
Well, now, though, you mentioned earlier that you're involved in the Harris program and Harris Ranch and Harris, their feedlot. As long, people in California that go between north and south usually drive by it, and everybody right. can relate to it because you go down Highway 5 between San Francisco and Los Angeles, and uh, on some days you can you can smell them when you drive <laughs> by, uh, but it's a, it's a big feedlot. So those cattle that you have that are up there in God's country, and and uh, when they reach a certain age, um, do you still own them when they go to the feedlot, or are you just supplying them? We would have that option, but it's it's kind of been our attitude that uh, if we were to retain ownership, as you had suggested, and, and go ahead and own them through harvest, if you will, um, that just adds risk to our business, and it would take capital to do that that we would prefer to put into the cow herd. So no, we'll sell them. We'll sell them on the uh, on the truck to Harris, and uh, they'll retain ownership until the end. However, uh, they graciously provide us with uh, 25% of the profit at the end of the game. So well, that's a good deal. And when they leave your your place, how much do they weigh going in to the line? Uh They'll weigh about seven to 800 pounds, depending on which group of cattle they are. Uh, and, the, uh, but they'll weigh seven to 800 pounds when they leave here. And then they uh, finish. Uh, at what weight would they be slaughtering them in? Uh, that's up to Harris, obviously. They might be as light as 1150 or as heavy as 1400 pounds, depending. I would say on average about 1250 mm -hmm. would, be the, would be the harvesting weight. We don't mm -hmm. use the term slaughter anymore. We harvest cattle now. Yeah, harvest. We, we're, we're, that's a, that. Yeah, we we have a sensitive sensitivity in that area. Yeah, and of yeah. course, Harris Harris does. Harris has her own uh, slaughter plant or harvesting plant as well. So uh, yeah. they're in through. Well, and they're still independent. I mean, there's a lot of farmers. It is correct. Oh, no, they absolutely are. They are not connected. To so it's not plant. one of the packing plants that are often talked about that uh, uh, from, you know, JBS and the other, the right. other larger, larger scales. It's our own right. California Ice plant. And Cargill, right. And oh. I assume people shopping and, Safeway and Rayleigh's and every place else we have up and down the West Coast uh, have an opportunity to enjoy the beef that started on, on your ranch. So I had a chance to hear you make some comments about uh, with about challenges faced. And, and Jackie, an interesting way of putting it, I don't know if I can even paraphrase it, but you were talking as far as help that the University of California and Extension Service uh, agriculture programs could, could do that said that from an agriculture standpoint, um, you said we need a bridge from what people expect from us or what the legislator or the regulators want. Well, how do we even how do we get there now? Again, I'm butchering it. You were much more articulate, but, but help <laughs> me with that. Yeah, I uh, know you're you're. Quite correct. It, it, and obviously, we've spoken to folks in the state about it as well. Uh, California is famous, if you will, either through the initiative process, legislative process, or executive process, you know, for kind of being out in the lead, if you will, on a number of different issues. And uh, we could applaud that, and, and many of those areas where they where they enter, whether it be water quality or air quality or global warming or climate change, however you want to phrase all these 
all these challenges that the world seems to face, uh, California is usually uh, out ahead tackling these issues. And um, many, many of them uh, have maturity dates in uh, 2035 or 2040 or even 2050, depending. And I think it's interesting where they where it's envisioned the state may be in 2035 or 2040 or 2050. But to take us to take agriculture, to take the whole state, but uh, but focusing on agriculture, Roger, you know, to take agriculture from where it is now with the trucks we have and the transportation we have, for instance, you know, we've talked about going down to the valley in trucks and and so on. Uh, and, and as you know, other commodities, there are all kinds of trucks dragging all kinds of commodities around California during the summer. And to take these trucks and, and our businesses, our tractors and so on from where we are to where the decision makers, the leaders, the influencers, and possibly the bulk of the population wants us to go, uh, mostly obviously referring to electrifying everything and taking away fossil fuel, certainly reducing our use, dramatically reducing our use of fossil fuel or eliminating it uh, from to take us from where we are right now to that point. Uh, it's difficult to see how we'll get there. And so I would encourage the decision makers and the leaders to make sure they provide a bridge for getting there. And um, it's a, it, it, I think it's a societal issue as well. I, I didn't. I, I don't want to interrupt you there, but um, it's a. We don't have what I would term a delicate balance in producing the food that's required to feed the world, but it is certainly somewhere. That's certainly an issue we don't want to get out of balance. And so, to move agriculture too quickly, to fallow too much land, to eliminate a lot of our ability to produce food and move it into the marketplace. Just be careful as we're going down that road. You know, when you say that, it just makes so much sense. And I like it that you started this out with saying it, it may well be what has to happen in the long run. But what I'm, what I imagine what you're saying is that somebody ought to slow down and say, ask the question. This is what you did say. Um, what implications does that have for agriculture? Is is are we doing too going too far too fast, or does there have to be some sort of mitigation or some sort of transition, or in some cases a, a subsidy or some other assistance that recognizes special situations? Um, other than like, what do we have at a certain time that we can't not going to be able to buy any cars that aren't electric or trucks or electric? Right. And is there somebody in that process that's saying, look, we get it? We understand why there's an issue. We understand why you think it's important, but just hold your horses here. What's this going to do to the way we're producing food? Yeah, that that's essentially it because it's it's critical to keep our production levels as high as possible. Obviously, not only in California but worldwide. So, you know, it might be more of a global issue than it is just California. But California always seems to be out ahead. And if California gets too far ahead of Nebraska or Montana or something like that, the California producers will, you know, ha see their competitive position erode and we'll lose maybe some of those competitive advantages we may have. So I, you know, got to keep all that in mind, if you will, let alone on a global on a global basis.
For instance, John Deere, John Deere has made the st- statement, at least so far, we're, we're looking at autonomous tractors and electrified, uh, you know, equipment. But if you get much over 100 horse, 100 horsepower in a, in a tractor, it, they still don't quite see their ability to make that electric electrified tractor or electrically powered tractor much over 100 horse. So, you know, make sure that the technology keeps up with what, what is desired or, or where, where, the, where our leaders want to take us. Well, this price of being the progressive leader out in front on, on, you know, again, let's say uh, important issues, uh, and then can perhaps you're not competitive, like you said. And we've already seen that in the dairy industry in California. There's many dairies that have closed down and moved to other states and stated right. that they felt that they couldn't, they couldn't compete any longer. They, it, uh, it just cost them too much. And, um, so, to get that word across, is that the job of your associations, of the cattlemen's associations, or the farm bureaus, or coalitions that uh, alliances with the you know the restaurant trade or supermarkets? Uh, how do you go forward to try to get that common sense into the proposition? I think all of the above, and but in addition, I think it's a responsibility of a lot of us as individuals to to do that same thing, especially. Uh, when we may cross paths with NGOs uh, or, you know, some of the nonprofits out there, some of those that may be a little bit more on the environmental side to kind of sit at the table with them, if you will, either as an individual or as a trade organization and explain it to them. I, I, I think we've had great success in that lately. I think uh, I think the collaboration that, that's been done across the West. I'm not necessarily as familiar with that uh, collaboration east of the Mississippi, but across the West, uh, we've, we've seen amazing, amazing strides in that kind of collaborative effort. Uh, there are a lot of us that uh, may deal with Audubon. We may deal with the World Wildlife Fund. Um, they may not like everything we do as producers, whether it be cattle or farming or anything else, but at least they understand the need for us to be here and the need for our industry to exist. If you look at the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef, uh, the Rainforest Alliance and the Global uh, and the World Wildlife Fund were among the early signatories to the agreement to establish that. And uh, what what you had to do to be a member of the Global Roundtable, you still do, is uh, you have to at least state in a letter form. There's kind of a form letter that you you support the beef industry and you understand it's necess- it's you understand the positive aspects of the beef industry so at any rate yeah i think it's our it's our all of our responsibility to make sure that continues to be the case you know as you say this jack i'm remembering many of the environmental groups that i've talked to before say good things about california growers and ranchers and perhaps we've gotten more used to some of these issues earlier than some other parts of the country but they feel like there's a good constructive relationship between the environmental groups like Environmental Defense Fund and several others yeah, that, have, that have good, good positive programs going on and communications between the growers. Now, one other area, it, if we're going to talk about agriculture in California, we almost always have to mention water. But you're above the area most people talk about 
No offense, but we, you know, all the water that gets shifted to the That'd south. Be above or below. So. <laughs> oh, you're above or below. Yeah, you you need water there. How? Uh, so how is how is the water issue affecting you? Well, it, uh, for us, uh, as you said, we're we're fortunately in an area that doesn't have a lot of urban demand. We do have uh, we do have environmental demands for in-stream uses and so on and so forth in lakes. But we can provide that water with with the systems that we have, and as well as irrigate. We're we're also on the eastern slope, so our area drains into the these uh, Great Basin lakes, like Honey Lake and Pyramid Lake, and things like that. And uh, the demands are substantially different, or the perceived demands anyway, are substantially different than. Those uh, areas and, and uh, those creeks and rivers and streams, obviously, that flow down through the California Delta, or the, uh, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area and the Delta down there and then out to the ocean. So we're great. We're fortunate. We, we have, uh, on our operation specifically, we have both surface water rights and then we have uh, we have irrigation. It, only one irrigation well. But when you get into these volcanic areas, uh, you're you're you either get nothing or you get as much as you want and we were very fortunate with our one irrigation well to get as much as we want so um we we don't uh we're we're not in the center of the radar screen for the state of california and uh so we're in we're in good shape here i think sigma uh which was uh, obviously passed in california what five years ago six years ago maybe seven now but that's uh, the Sustainable Sustainable Groundwater Management Act that's in the state of California. Very difficult for farmers in the Sacramento and San Joaquin Valley to be dealing with that right now. And we have followed their the acreage number runs from 300,000 maybe to 500,000 acres uh, that have been followed off and on due to uh, lack of water during the drought period. And, uh, you know, that's something that the state has to watch out for. Jack, I know that there was a time you were a student in Berkeley, and probably much of that time wouldn't imagine that you'd be ranching. You know, we flash ahead to the years we have to be here today. And and I, I think about that because I was just recently at Eco Farm and I saw so many young people and everyone's saying, you know, it's so different. It's nice to see people that wanting to get into agriculture. And it is, it is great to get into agriculture. But you were one of those young people at, at the time, back in, in the Berkeley days and shortly after, and you now find yourself a rancher. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, as you look back at your own journey of not having a ranch and agriculture background and still finding your way today where you're not only ranching, but you've got your, your family ranching with you, too, and thinking ahead to the future, I wonder if you got... Um, I mean, there must have been a few things that you hadn't thought you were going to get into that you got into. But how is this? Everything. How do you view that journey? Uh, interesting, Roger. Thank you for asking. Uh, yeah, I uh, yes. Um, graduated from college, uh, and, and as you mentioned, graduated from Berkeley uh, back in 1967. And of course, for those uh, history buffs on the university, realized that that would have placed you on the Berkeley campus in 1964 which would have been the start of the so-called free speech movement and the, some would term riots and some would term peaceful demonstrations and sit-ins. 
uh, on the Berkeley campus in 64. And I've often characterized it uh, as you could take a naive uh, young man coming uh, going to college. And I had the opportunity on the same day, if you will, or even in the same place to smell marijuana and tear gas at the same time. Anyway, um, after uh, serving in the military uh, and working in uh, the city of San Francisco for about five years, I was disenchanted with urban life and always had an attachment to, to the great outdoors. And so in 1975, I strayed, but only temporarily to go up uh, and uh, kind of work on a ranch. Uh, and uh, it was not a real ranch. It was just kind of a absentee owner type place. And 19, uh, that uh, temporary job obviously turned into something permanent. I went there without knowing the difference between a steer and a heifer, almost literally, to be honest with you. And uh, so uh, it was a real eye-opening experience. We had a few minor disasters, but I consider myself the poster child or a typical poster child, if you will, for cooperative extension. If you go into something, I think, if you go into something because you're passionate about it, not just because you're born into it, and I don't want to make too much difference between multi-generation ranches and ranchers that are kind of first generation, but if you go into something about which you're passionate and you go into it altruistically and you go into it because you think it's an honorable thing to do, your thirst for that knowledge, your quest for that knowledge to 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 uh, you know, go ahead and be part of the business, I think really is a wonderful opportunity. So I just, I soaked it all in from veterinarians, from other farmers, from cooperative extension more than anybody else, cooperative extension. And uh, so I think that uh, that got me for better or for worse where we are now. So, but I think that thirst for knowledge is, is very important. I think that, Thirst for knowledge is around again. There's a lot of young people that want to get yes, back. And, and um, But one thing, Jack, that you might be pointing out to folks is that they can't necessarily count on it being as profitable as they'd like all the time. And, and maybe another way to slice this is in agriculture, almost uh, everywhere I can think of, the margins seem to be very, very thin. And there go you see people go through times, different areas and different commodities where there's no margin, where they're actually just losing money. Um, has that gotten better or worse? Uh, or does it just go with the territory? Yeah, the economics of the business, again, I'd reflect back. I, I graduated with a degree in economics, and one would wonder why, if you had a degree in economics, did you go into the cattle business? The two of them are at odds. But anyway, you know, I used to think that, wow, this is a business that's not getting a return on their labor. It's not getting a return on their assets or their equity or whatever you want to look at. Uh, and I thought, wow, someday this may happen. Well, that day we're still looking for it. I think that, yes, in many agricultural businesses, it is a pretty narrow profit margin. Um and most recently, for instance, uh, the price of cattle in 2022, the price of these calves that we sell, it probably increased between 10 and 20 percent. And it's going to vary from operation to operation. 
So we saw we saw an increase of 10 or 20 percent. We'll probably see in 2023 an increase of 10 or 20 percent or maybe even more. But again, the only issue that is, has come up as well would be take a look at our primary inputs. Primary inputs are feed, labor, fuel, and all of those. And, and do not forget interest. Um, agricultural businesses have a lot of what we term operating loans. Most of those are variable. It's kind of hard to fix them all. So the cost of our primary inputs have uh, gone up much more than 20%. So yeah, keeping your margins in the plus side and increasing those margins, uh, it's, a, it's a challenge. I think it's a challenge for even for the nut people and so on and so forth. Uh, they've had some wonderful time with almonds and walnuts and pistachios. But I think pistachios is probably the only one right now that uh, is showing some pretty good profits. So it's a it's an issue. I would say that we probably get paid in the final analysis because most of the land that we own and, and operate on has increased substantially in value too. So if you want to consider that as part of your return on assets or ROA, then uh, then then we're doing well. We uh, we get to expense a lot of the uh, normal expense. We get to expense against our against our revenues, against our gross revenues, we get to expense a lot of the items that uh, a normal family would not be able to take as a business expense. So there are trade-offs. No, I think that's a, that's important to, to point out that that's, that is the case. So when you look at the, down the road, uh, you've been on this journey, you're in it right now, and yet uh, in addition to the challenges of being in, an, in a state, in this case, that's coming up with big ideas and that they need to slow down and wonder what the implications are for what they're doing for, for agriculture, you're also in a, in a state, maybe in the whole country, that is critical of having cows, period. I mean, I go through looking on Twitter and some other places and I'm seeing people think, my goodness, there's a lot of people picking on cows and raising cows. So that... That must be discouraging as a rancher to see so many people that think that they have it's their job to tell folks to stop eating beef and how raising cows are an evil thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a, it, it, it does get a little uh, tiring sometimes to be demonized in that respect. But uh, I think a couple of things. Uh, obviously, uh, if we're we're addressing obviously uh, the those folks uh, that. Uh, see global warming out there to be a, a, a pretty big threat, whether it be climate change or global warming, or people have died freezing to death during ice ages that have mm -hmm. died during, during warm times. But we'll leave that. We'll leave that one alone. But, um, you know, I think the, the cattle industry, if somebody were to look at the science of it, uh, you would find that we may not be quite as bad in the carbon area as one would suspect. Uh, Many of our the properties on which we run uh, sequester carbon as well as uh, as well as uh, the fact that we we use a lot of fossil fuel from time to time and, and uh, send a little carbon out that way. As far as the methane issue on cows, um, we as you know we have uh, we have a, a number of scientists that uh, have done a very good job, if you will, of of uh, suggesting that the methane that uh, cows get blamed for belching out not farting out by the way but uh, that methane that's uh, that they put in the air it kind of decomposes pretty quickly and it's a it's a constant uh 
circle of methane. It, it doesn't increase, if you will. In fact, there was probably more methane uh, if we look about two or 300 years ago when we had a bunch of buffalo roaming the range and so on and forth and so forth. I, I think that one, one area that in, in that respect that I find interesting, if a group of individuals or a, an organization or our detractors, if you will, if they want to eliminate livestock, and there are many that, uh, the many that would like to do it for a variety of reasons, but not the vast majority by any stretch of the imagination. They're a very vocal minority. Be careful. Again, I come back to the food issue. Cattle around the world are a very important part of the high quality, nutritious, safe, and I dare say even affordable food that, uh, that humans need to exist. And if you're going to, if you're going to uh, propose that we eliminate cattle from this earth in order to save ourselves from global warming, um, you you might want to be very careful on the food issue as well. If I were, it, it, and I'll get in trouble if I can say this, um, the U.S. beef industry produces maybe 20 to 30 percent, maybe pushing up towards 30 percent of the beef in the world. And we do it with about uh, 10 percent of the cattle. Um, we're fairly productive. If you wanted to take a look at cattle that may not be as productive, one might uh, look at India and China and other areas. Those cattle put out as much methane as our cattle do we produce a little bit more food, but that, I'm not even suggesting that you go down that road. So it's all right. I will. I, I think it's an important point. Uh, and I think you're being diplomatic. You're, you're doing the right I thing. Do right. Anyway, Roger. Uh, right I do anyway, Roger. I think it, I think it is important to point out, but the other thing I would point out is we started this conversation, Jack, as we're wrapping up now, but I want as we started this conversation was trying to paint a picture of where you are. And if the people listening could come all join us at your ranch now and 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 take a look, they'd see uh they'd see land that grazing's what you should be doing. And you're not going to be producing food on much of what you have described in the high deserts or or even some of the other lands that you're into. You're not going to be growing almonds or soybeans or you know, oranges or, you know, you just go on and on. There's uh, several hundred commodities you wouldn't be growing. But Unless global warming continues and, and it becomes, we, we have weather like the Sacramento Valley, then we may change. But Well, that's true. Oh, that's, that's true. No, you're, you're absolutely right. right. The property is most suited for, for cattle in our estimation. Uh, but uh, don't forget that uh, that land and the water and the, and the food that we produce is also... Uh, also providing food and fiber for antelope and deer and other ungulates uh, out there. And uh, we, we have a substantial bird population on the property, um, whether it be waterfowl, migratory birds or resident birds. So I think that if you take a look at it from an ecosystem standpoint, an environmental standpoint, um, it's providing a number of services as well. Jack, I really appreciate having this conversation with you. And I think that there's some people that have joined us today 
that don't have the opportunity to get out and see a ranch like yours and hear this side of agriculture that that often. But to wrap up, I, I want to ask you one one other question, and that is, we've talked some about the history of what's going on right now. You've got family in the business. As you look down the road, what gives you hope? What gives you some some optimism on the future of ranching and farming and the kind of agriculture we've been talking about today? That's a, that's a good question. I, 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 I mean, one, obviously, we live here and we love what we're doing but at the same time as you know the sustainability stool if you will has three legs on it one is society the other is environment but the other one is profitability you have to keep these operations profitable and i think that's going to continue to occur um i what really gives me some hope i'll be honest with you and uh, you and I see it periodically when we serve on serve on certain committees and commissions and so on. Um, the collaboration and the appreciation for what we do, I think, has has really increased substantially lately. And uh, I I I get some satisfaction certainly, and and not just here in California, but I mean, I we have counterparts in Montana and Idaho and Wyoming, and uh, I think there's a greater appreciation for what we do and what we produce. And I think that gives me hope. Well, it gives me hope too, Jack. And I think that one of the thing I would point out is that people should follow your lead and you do need to be ready to step up and become involved in committees and boards and support your associations and your councils and, and be engaged. I think some people that have been getting into agriculture don't realize that to keep it going, they're going to have to work together as an industry, work with their neighbors, and also reach out to groups they may normally aren't in contact with, like you were mentioning earlier. And there's a lot of opportunities, but there's a, there's a side of the business beside what is typically the hard work of ranching and farming, it seems. Yeah, yeah, there is. Well, I would invite yeah. anybody, anybody on the listening to the podcast or anything else. I, I know my contact information isn't there, but you have it. And anybody ever wants to get in touch or come on out here and take a look at what we're doing, uh, pretty much an open book. Uh, if you care to, you actually, you can go on Google Earth and you can see what's going on, to be honest with you. So, yeah. And Jack Hansen, and the name of your ranch is Willow Creek Ranch. And name for the creek that bisects the ranch. And where it's the nearest town. So if we're going to go on Google Susanville, Earth. California would be the nearest city, but it is a city of 7,000. So don't expect a large city. And the primary the primary industry in Susanville is state prisons, I'm sorry to say. Oh, okay. Well, there, there may be some Believe people there that. that want to become ranchers, too. So. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Jack, thanks a lot. Appreciate well, thank you, Roger. You. As I said, it's been an honor to work with you. Look forward to doing it again in the near future. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. If you like what you hear, go to farmtotabletalk.com and follow us. Farm to Table Talk.